because of what God has been doing through this church over the last 85 years. I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, on Mother's Day, we seem to talk about things like the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control, all these wonderful things. But on Father's Day, you know what we're talking about? The end times. (laughs) Pretty typical, right? I mean, that's how it would shake out. Um, So let me ask you a question. How many of you in here have a question about the end times? I want to see your hands. We're going to get your feedback today. Everybody, come on. No, you, you, okay, a lot of questions, right? Uh, let me ask a follow-up question. How many of you would like to preach for me today? None. Not even Rob is raising his hand. just want to make a note of that. In theology, a term we use to talk about the end times is eschatology. This means the study of the last things. And we've all thought about this at some point in our life, right? I mean, we've all thought about the end or if there's an end or what we think about the end or the end of history. We all think about it, but the truth is we don't really like talking about it. I've heard it described, uh, eschatology, as sort of the embarrassing, uneducated uncle of Christian theology, right? You admit that it's part of the family, but you don't really want it to come over for Sunday brunch and start a fight, right? In fact, it seems like sometimes the only people talking about the end times is the History Channel after 10 p.m., right? If you flip through the channels, you know what I'm talking about. But seriously, we avoid talking about eschatology. We avoid talking about the end, and I think there's a lot of good reasons for that. First, I think we just find it very confusing. I mean, have you read the book of Revelation? It's confusing. The images and the language that is used there is just so foreign to any way that we talk or the imagery we use today. So we get confused. So we avoid it. Another reason we avoid talking about it is it's just kind of weird, right? It's kind of a strange thing to talk about it. And when you talk about the end times, it feels almost like you're talking about aliens, right? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Uh... But thirdly, another reason we avoid talking about eschatology or the end times more seriously is because we've seen it abused a lot, right? I mean, every generation has a couple demented leaders who use their predictions about the end times to manipulate a group of people, either for control or for power or for their own profit. And sometimes the end results are are terrible, right? So we just avoid the subject. Another reason we avoid talking about eschatology is because even in a church like ours, a Bible-believing, Orthodox Christian church, it's a hotly debated issue. There are different perspectives, different views, different timelines, and so it can turn into an argument or a debate or a disagreement. So today I'm not really going to get into all the nitty-gritty details of the end because we're really only talking about one passage. I'm not going to get into the timelines. I'm not going to get into the debates of the sequence of the events happens. But before I get any further, I do want to show you a little picture here I think will be helpful in kind of laying out what do we agree on as Christians. How much can we say, well, we at least agree on this? And I think this picture helps us capture this. Essentially, we think 
of history as consisting of three ages. Uh, I think actually you're probably already familiar with this. There's before Christ, B.C., right? You've heard of that? And there's after Christ, A.D., this time period here. And the Bible tells us that there's another pivotal moment in history, and this is the second coming of Jesus, after which the world will be set to rights. What I mean by that is that all that is wrong with this world All the pain, all the suffering, the tears, the death, all of it will be completely and utterly removed when Jesus comes once and for all to set up his eternal kingship on earth. This is a huge deal. And so essentially all of us agree that there are these three major components of history. There's the time before Christ, there's the time after Christ, and there's the time after the second coming of Christ. And we live right here in this gray area, in between the world as it is now and the world as it's going to be in the future. This is the reason why when we see some of the horrible events that are happening in the news today, like 162,000 people dead in Syria, and we feel a sadness, but we also feel an indignation and anger right? A righteous anger about these things. We think the world is not as it ought to be and it must not remain as it is. Essentially what this is, is an eschatological longing. We're wanting for the future. We're wanting for history to end, not as a a cessation to exist, but for it to be resolved, for it to be redeemed, for it to be restored. Our eschatology is so important because it's our only hope for ultimate justice. It's our only hope for these longings we have for the world to be different to actually happen. It's beyond our ability to do this. I mean, think about it. Look back at history. Even though our technology and our uh, advances in sophistication are growing exponentially each year, the world's not getting better because we can't address the real problem. The real problem is sin. And the erosion of sin on the human heart and on our physical world is a problem that cannot be reversed by the works of our hands. So as Christians, we know that this is a knot that only God can untie. We know that this is a puzzle only he can undo. We know that this can only happen by a power only he has. Our eschatology is actually a really big deal. It's really important. Did you know that if you were to divide out all the material of the New Testament, about one out of every 13 verses makes reference to the second coming of Christ? And yet, we hardly talk about it. And it's not just a set of facts that we're supposed to know either. We're not just supposed to know that this is going to happen. It actually matters for our day in and day out lives. And according to the passage that we're going to look at today, perseverance through the hardships of today are sustained by our ultimate hope for tomorrow. Perseverance through the hardships of today is sustained by our ultimate hope 
of tomorrow. If you've given your life to Jesus, you have an unstoppable, unrelenting hope that cannot be taken away, that cannot be squelched, that cannot be changed. This is a fact that will never be taken away regardless of what life throws at you. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 13. I'd like you all to get there. If you don't have a Bible, use your phone or grab one out of the the chair in front of you because we're going to be looking at a fairly long text today and it's a complicated, confusing text that's actually pretty highly debated. So what I want to do is set up this passage for the three different ways in which it's viewed and then I'm going to periodically stop throughout as we read it together to explain some of the key issues at stake here. So there's three general schools of thought for understanding this section of prophecy found in Mark 13. The first school of thought is that this prophecy Jesus is giving here is going to be fulfilled in just a few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus in 70 AD. In 70 AD, Rome marches on Jerusalem, wipes out the entire city, completely destroys the temple, and there's incredible suffering throughout the land. So there's one school of thought that reads this passage that Jesus is predicting these events to come in 70 AD. There's another school of thought that believes although this happened in 70 AD, it is not the full, complete fulfillment of what is talked about in this text. What this text is talking about is a future that is yet to come. What it's talking about are, is the second coming of Jesus. And then there's a third group. This third group is kind of like middle ground that believes in something we call multiple fulfillment. Essentially what they would say is that in 70 AD, these prophecies were partially fulfilled as a foreshadowing of its greater fulfillment that is to come in the second coming of Jesus. So you guys with me on the three ways to kind of view this prophecy? There's this has already been fulfilled, this is yet to be fulfilled, and both and. Okay, so let's dive in, starting in verse 1 and follow along with me here. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Let me pause right there really quickly. The temple in ancient Jerusalem was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was unbelievable, unprecedented, and unmatched in the ancient world. It was built of stone. Some of the stones were said to be about 40 feet long, 18 feet thick, and 10 feet high. It's just to give you some perspective, it's 55 feet from that door to that door. So about from this right here all the way to that door, one giant stone, 10 feet high, 18 feet thick. That's one million pounds. And when you're an ancient Joe Schmo, you can't exactly go get a caterpillar around the corner and put this thing together. There was nothing like it in the ancient world. So they're walking out of this temple that's not only magnificent in its structure, but it's essentially the center of the universe for the Jewish people. It's the center of their national identity, the center of their political world, it's the center of their religious world. I mean, this place is important, and they are in awe of it. Now imagine their shock when Jesus responds in verse 2. You see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. 
as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, they exited out the east of the temple, walked up the mountain, and they're overlooking this temple. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? So the disciples ask essentially two questions here, right? When will these things happen? And what will the signs be that they're going to be fulfilled? Jesus begins by answering the second question first. What are the signs that this is about to be fulfilled? And this is the prophetic section of this discourse. This is verses 5 through 27. Then Jesus answers the second question, when? When is this going to occur? And he does this with two brief illustrations in verses 28 through 37. We're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at this prophetic chunk of Jesus' discourse here in verses 5 through 27. So continue following along with me again in verse 5. Jesus said to them, Watch out. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. And these, these are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard you will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now this verse is very important, especially for the group who views this passage as talking about the second coming of Jesus and the group in the middle that believes it's talking about both. Because essentially what this passage is saying is that before Christ comes again, every nation, every people will have the chance to respond to this incredible message of hope given to us in Jesus. In this time in between now and not yet, in this gray area where we believe all peoples will be given a chance to respond to Jesus. And it's one of the reasons why this church has such a strong missions heritage as you saw in that video and as we commissioned the Prestons here this morning. Because we're passionate about the world knowing this hope. Verse 11. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you will say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. Father, his child. Happy Father's Day, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then he transitions into another section here. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, time out. The abomination that causes desolation? What is that? I know many of you have probably never heard that phrase before, and I'm thinking, what in the world is this text talking about? Well, it's referencing an ancient prophecy from the Old Testament in the book of Daniel that one day there will be this an abomination of desolation, essentially this... Uh, really 
uh, major sacrilege in the temple, in the holiest place of the temple, where the offerings are made to God, that there will be an idol set, made up to a foreign god, and this is the abomination of desolation. Now, some people interpret this passage because of the way the ancient language uh, says it, that it's referring to a man, a particular man, the Antichrist, uh, or the man of lawlessness from the book of Second Thessalonians in the Bible. So they think this is a really important sign, this Antichrist is somebody who is yet to come, who will perform this uh, abomination of desolation or become this abomination of desolation in the temple. And then he continues to describe this sudden and severe time of suffering. So when you see this, let no one go on the housetop, no one on the housetop go down and enter their house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on guard. I have told you everything beforehand. Now the text is about to take a pretty major turn, but it doesn't give you a real good sign. Right now, Jesus is turning to the second coming of Jesus. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heavens. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking that is a lot to digest. What in the world is going on here? How are we to respond to something like this? Well, I think it's really helpful to recognize that there are at least two distinct voices speaking to us when we read or hear prophecy. There is the voice that I call uh, the prophetic detail voice. This is the voice explaining what is going to happen in the future. What's going to happen then? But prophecy is not just about sharing information. It's not just about satisfying curiosity. It's not just about giving you sort of inside info on what's going to happen in the future. Prophecy is also intended to have an outcome in our life today. And this is the other voice, the pastoral heart of a prophetic passage like this. After all, there's a reason why this is being shared, this information about tomorrow. There's a reason why it's being shared today. So what's that reason? That's the pastoral heart of this passage. What's the desired effect of these future events on my life right now? So you have the prophetic details, 
which are often very complex, they're abstract, and they can be controversial because of that, because there's different views. And you have the pastoral heart, which is usually simple, it's usually practical, and it's usually agreed upon. So we all have our natural leanings. Some of us, maybe you think of yourself kind of as a prophecy buff. You're going to lean more towards trying to figure out the prophetic details and really getting into the to the nitty-gritty of what that's all about. Others of you maybe are disinterested or even talking about this. You kind of roll your eyes, and all you really care about is the pastoral heart of what's being said here. The truth is, we need both voices. We, we can't have one without the other. To really understand what's being said, we have to have one ear tuned into the prophetic details and one ear tuned in to the pastoral heart. It's like listening in stereo. And when we understand them properly, they speak in concert with one another and give us a fuller picture of what's being said in the text. After all, without at least some clarity around the prophetic details in a passage, there is no credibility to what's being said. If we can't recognize someday in the future that what Jesus said in the past came true, how could his words ever be credible? How could we ever know that he is an authority on speaking about things that are yet to come? And if we didn't have the pastoral heart, we're just left with a horoscope, with a dread of a looming future that uh, we are not sure what to do with. So we've spent some time listening to the prophetic details in this text which are very important. Now let's turn our ear to the pastoral heart of this prophecy. Why is Jesus sharing this with his disciples? Why is it being shared with us today? What is the desired effect in our lives? What are we supposed to do with this? In order for us to begin to understand this or address these questions or understand the pastoral heart, I think we really have to put ourselves in Peter's shoes. You have to be there with Jesus, walking out of the temple, and hear these words spoken to you. Let me help you. It's a beautiful sunny day. You're enjoying the incredible architecture, and Jesus turns to you and says, everything you see here is about to be destroyed. Everyone you know is about to go through an intense time of unprecedented suffering. You are going to be handed over to the authorities and beaten and flogged. There's going to be wars. There's going to be famine. There's going to be earthquakes. How do you think Peter felt when he heard those words? How do you feel when you hear those words? Not good, right? You don't feel good. You're wondering, what's going on? Why is Jesus saying this? Well, he's not doing it just to rain on the parade. He's doing this because the disciples are going to need this. I mean, need this. Jesus has given them a clear mission. Remember, share the gospel, verse 10. Now he's telling them again that the road ahead is going to be rough. I mean, 
really, really rough. They're going to need to hold on. They're going to need to be on guard. They're going to need to stand firm to the end. It's going to get hard, and they're going to face all kinds of terrible things. It's going to seem like the world is spinning out of control, but don't panic. Don't worry. There's going to be all sorts of people, all sorts of pretenders who are going to claim that they can save you, that they can save you from this great suffering, these false messiahs, but they can't and they won't. Just keep preaching the gospel and I will provide you with the words to speak in difficult moments. Man, that is a tough message. Don't you guys think that's a tough message to hear? I sure do. And it doesn't feel great. But you know what I think? I think the hardest part about this passage is what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say that he's going to spare the disciples from these beatings. He doesn't say he's going to spare them from being arrested. He doesn't say he's going to spare their lives or spare them from this great persecution. He says he's going to help them persevere. I don't know about you, but I would be asking for supernatural deliverance, not supernatural perseverance, right? Who here wants supernatural perseverance? No hands. I didn't think there would be any takers, right? Don't give me the words. Get me out of here. I mean, even just this week, I was faced with several difficult situations where I was pleading with God on behalf of people in our community who are going through deep, deep suffering right now. I mean, it's easy for me to pray for deliverance and mean it, but it's really hard for me to pray for perseverance and mean it. Right? Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with praying for deliverance. And we're supposed to do that. Ironically, we need to persevere in praying for deliverance. But being told to persevere doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always satisfy us. Have you ever had somebody just say, well, keep on keeping on? Is that a good thing? Like, are you like, yeah, all right. Thanks for that. Really appreciate it. Of course not. Or you go to the doctor and uh, you've got a really bad sore throat and the worst thing that they could possibly say, it's a virus, right? This means we can't do anything. We're going to have to let it run its course, right? That's the worst. It's so disappointing. But this passage is not like that. That's not what Jesus is doing here. The beauty of this prophecy that we just read is Jesus isn't telling his disciples to persevere because that's all they can do. He isn't telling them to persevere because it's their last resort. No, Jesus is graciously telling his disciples and us that we are going to face struggles, difficulties, and persecutions in this life if we choose to follow him. Well, why? Why is that so gracious? couple reasons. One, because it's true. And he's gracious enough to tell us the truth. Two, so that we can know that when the world seems like it's spinning out of control, it's not. It's still in his control. So that we can follow in the very steps of Jesus who perfectly displayed faithful perseverance in the face of the fiercest persecution. The one who perfectly persevered. The one who perfectly walked through the incredible hardships of his life to establish our ultimate hope of his second coming. 
The Bible tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Why is this so gracious? Because this allows the gospel to be preached in our word and deed as we persevere in the face of persecution. I think sometimes we think that if we're facing persecution because of our faithful walk with God or sharing the gospel with a friend or with a neighbor or a coworker, if something bad were to happen or they were to respond negatively, it's because you did something wrong. And if you had a better way of doing it, it would have gone better. That's not true. Faithful proclamation in your life will lead to persecution. Jesus did it perfectly, and they killed him. Let's not forget that. And after all, and I think most poignantly, isn't this the gospel? That the persecution that was meant to destroy Jesus is the very thing God used to save the world. The persecution that was meant to destroy Jesus is the very thing God used to save the world. And what God ultimately accomplished through Jesus, he's been doing through countless Christians since then. I know it's hard for us to really understand, but this perseverance through the hardships of today is not our last resort. It's a part of his perfect plan. And it's sustained by our ultimate hope of tomorrow. In fact, the reason each of us are here today is because of the faithful perseverance of those who came before us. Not just 85 years worth, but 2,000 years worth. That's an amazing thought. And the beautiful thing is, too, that he can do it through you as well. But it doesn't just stop there. This isn't like a a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of perseverance. This is a different kind of perseverance that is fueled by a hope that was described in verses 24 through 27. The second coming, the Son of Man coming in on the clouds with great power and glory. The return of a king so powerful, so full of glory that even the elements of the cosmos shudder at his presence. This is the God who created the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is the only person with the power to recreate them. This is the only person with the power to accomplish that which our heart desires for the world around us. And that, that hope, is what drives us to persevere in the midst of our hardships today. So persevere through the hardships of today. Be sustained by our ultimate hope of tomorrow. Jesus closes this discourse with two short stories that illustrate this tension we live in today in between the now and the not yet. I'm not going to get into the details of these stories, but essentially what Jesus is saying, the time is now. Be ready. Be ready. We're not going to know when. We're not going to know the day and the hour, but it's soon. It's next. Perseverance through the hardships of today is sustained by our ultimate hope of tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year, not after you get that new job, not after you get that new house, not after whatever fill in the blank. It's the hope of tomorrow. Famous preacher and pastor Martin Luther 
had a motto that he told people regularly. He said, I only have two days on my calendar. I have today and I have that day. And he used this motto as a way to remind himself to leave each moment in the present with the elevated sense of urgency, determination, and purpose that is required of us as we live in between the now and the not yet. So what does it look like for us to take hold of this future hope today? Well, I can think of no better example than one of the men Jesus was talking to in Mark 13. One of the men sitting at his feet on the Mount of Olives, hearing this prophecy and being stirred inside, probably not feeling very good as we talked about early. And it's Peter. Peter was a man who had a hard time understanding that suffering had to be a part of the Christian life. In fact, there's one passage in one of the Gospels that describes uh, Jesus talking about his own suffering, and Peter pulls Jesus aside, I mean, picture this, and says, Jesus, you're wrong. You're not going to suffer. These things cannot happen to you. And Jesus turns at him and gives him a pretty harsh rebuke. He says, get behind me, Satan. Because it's only him who could think of a way of life that doesn't include suffering. Peter struggled with suffering big time. Fast forward a little bit, Jesus gets arrested. Where's Peter? Following from a safe distance, scared for his life. Jesus is being beaten by the authorities, the governors, the very people that he describes in this passage to Peter. And Peter is outside in the temple courts denying he had any connection with Jesus. And he does it three times, afraid for his life. And he runs away. He runs away like a coward. But then you flip forward past the Gospels and you see a Peter described in the book of Acts that is radically different. I mean, something happened to Peter. Something happened to Peter where he turned from this coward into this amazing man of courage. A man who stands before that very council and boldly proclaims the gospel of Jesus to them, knowing that could have cost him his life. A man who ends up dying, being crucified upside down because of his bold proclamation of the gospel. What happened to Peter? How could he turn from this coward into this man of courage? I'll tell you exactly what happened to Peter. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He was faced with a picture of his end and he knew he had nothing to fear. If this man can beat death, certainly all of his promises, all of his talk about his ultimate and final return, the redemption and restoration of all of history, certainly it's all true. Certainly I have nothing to fear. Certainly I can follow this path though it be laden with suffering. Certainly I can persevere through the hardships of today and be sustained by this hope for tomorrow that he saw in the face of Jesus. Here's the beautiful thing. What happened in Peter's heart 2,000 years ago can happen in your heart today. 
your eschatology, like Peter's, can change right now. You can place your hope, your trust, in the one who defeated death. So no matter what you face, you need not fear. Because you are his, and he is yours. Amen? This is good news. So what do we do in response to news that is this good? I'll tell you what we do. We worship. We sing. We pray together corporately in the form of song. So the band's going to come up here. And while they're doing this, while they're coming up and getting ready, I want to encourage you as we sing to pray for the perseverance through the hardships of today that you would be sustained by this hope of tomorrow. So let me pray. Father God, thank you for this incredible news, a news that we are so unworthy of receiving or being able to have these promises that you've given us of your second coming. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we turn to you with our worship of words, giving you the very thoughts of our minds, the devotion of our heart, and also with our offering, with the things that you've given us, Lord. Let this worship be an expression of your incredible grace for us. Amen.